Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. John chapters 20 and 21 are going to give us the final narratives, the conclusion, the the climax of the gospel of John. In verses 1 through 10, we have the resurrection. Um, As soon as Passover is over, Mary Magdalene heads to the tomb and finds the stone has been removed. Now, in other gospels, it says that the women go to prepare the body. It's been hastily buried And now they go to prepare it properly. That's not the way John portrays it. He portrays it as Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus have already prepared the body, even though that would have ordinarily been women's work. And now it shows Mary Magdalene going alone to the tomb. She's probably just going um, in the same way that we go to the cemetery and place flowers to grieve, to, to have a point of contact with what we're grieving. But she, when she arrives, she finds the stone has been removed. So we know that this tomb is a cave. There's been a stone rolled in front of it. Um, and so she runs away when she finds the, the tomb open to tell Simon, Peter, and John. Then those two disciples take off running back. It's interesting to me that John needs to tell us that he outruns Peter, but he doesn't go in. He gets there first, but he stops outside. He can look inside and see that there are linen wrappings laying there. Now, remember, this was a new tomb, so there have been no other bodies. We cannot mistake these wrappings as those of belonging to a body that have decayed. First body ever, only body, has to be those from around Jesus. The linen wrappings laying there also tell us that the body has not been stolen. If you were stealing the body, you would simply take all the linen wrappings and everything away. But this gives us the indication that the body has passed through those linen wrappings and they're still there. Peter, however, when he arrives, doesn't hesitate. He goes right on into the tomb. John tells us that the head cloth, the linen wrapping that would have gone over the face, is laying separate. Um, This, too, implies that Jesus has passed through them. Everything is where it was. The body's just missing. Um, Jesus' resurrection is different from the resurrection of Lazarus because Lazarus comes forth from the tomb still wearing his burial wrappings and has has to be unbound. Let him loose him and let him go. Jesus doesn't have to be loosed. He has loosed all of us from our bindings, and the wrappings literally get left behind. Um, there is a claim regarding this folded napkin, the fold, the one that went over the face. And some of them are saying that it was indicating whether din- a dinner guest was returning or whether they had finished their meal. Um, and they're saying that this linen wrapping being rolled up or folded up where it was is a sign that either Jesus had completed his work, he's finished, or that he was returning. Like, I'm, I'm laying my napkin right here because I'm coming back to finish this meal. And so it's supposed to be a sign of his second coming or return. There's no evidence in archaeology or any other writings in the Bible or outside of the Bible that that was actually a custom at the time. So it's really no more than an unsubstantiated rumor. 
um, that has kind of been passed on enough that it's kind of becoming accepted as um, true when it may not be. Um, it does say, however, that it's folded up or rolled up. The Greek verb here is entuliso, which means to wrap up, to roll around, to envelop. It's related to the verb tuliso, which is to twist. The focus is on it being neat and near, but separate from. Um, this is not haphazard, like everything's not been wadded up and thrown in a corner. It, things are orderly here, and it really does make it sound as though the wrappings, including the one over the face, are exactly where they would have been if the body had just disappeared from the midst of it. Verses eight, verses 11 through 18 show us that John believes the resurrection. Seeing the wrappings convince him that something miraculous has occurred. And so Peter and John go home. Um, they leave. There's nothing else to be done here. But Mary stays, and she's crying. I, Mary seems to still not be completely convinced and understanding of, of what has happened. Even if she knows the resurrection is coming, this is not how she pictured it to happen. Like, where is Jesus? Like, if he's not here, where is he? She bends over, and it either could apply that she bends over and looks into the tomb, or she bends over and goes into the tomb. Maybe she's crying and is going to sit down there by the wrappings and and cry for a bit. Manuscripts differ on whether she bends over and looks in or, or goes in. Um, she's distraught nonetheless. Um, it says she is weeping. This is the Greek word kleio, um, which means to mourn, to lament. It's audible sobbing um, here. So she doesn't just have tears flowing down her cheek. She is distraught and sobbing. When she looks in or goes in, she sees two angels inside the tomb. Now, those angels weren't there earlier. There's no mention of anybody passing by them. How would Peter, John, and Mary have stood there discussing and trying to figure out what's happening and have two, two men, two angels walk past them into the tomb? The angels have miraculously appeared inside the tomb. And then Jesus himself is behind her but she doesn't recognize him. There is something different about this resurrection body, or it could be that she's just not expecting him. Um, sometimes it's hard for us to recognize people outside the context where we expect them to be. She thinks he's the gardener, but she recognizes his voice. Remember, we've already been told that sheep recognize the voice of their shepherd. They know their shepherd's voice and they respond to it. Mary is one of the sheep of the flock of God. She recognizes her shepherd's voice. In verse 17, Jesus tells her not to cling to him. Um, the Greek here is haptu, hapto, um, means close clutching action. She may be hanging on to him. So it could be he hasn't yet gone to the father and he, she's like, he's telling her not to cling to a body that hasn't yet ascended, but it feels like it probably means more than that. Like she should not cling to him, to the way things have been, to his earthly existence. She can't keep clutching to the past. A new segment of this journey is now being inaugurated. Things are going to be different, and she needs to embrace this new way that ministry and life are going to happen and go forth from here. He sends her off as the first evangelist to go tell the disciples that he is, in fact, resurrected. 
Some people use this as an argument for why it's okay for women to be pastors. As a female pastor, I'm certainly open to scripture that does condone me doing what I feel I've been called to do. I just don't think this is a very strong argument for it. He doesn't commission her to go be a pastor. He commissions her to go tell the good news, the gospel. All believers are called to share the good news of Jesus Christ, to share their faith journey. We are all witnesses, not just pastors um, here. I think there's much better evidence for why women can be pastors. Verses 19 through 23, um, Jesus has commissioned Mary to go be his witness in his encounter with her. Now he's going to come and commission a larger group of the disciples. Um, They're afraid. They're wondering what happens now. Um, They're trying to figure out what has happened and they're behind locked doors. That gives them, the lock would have given them just a little bit longer to have um, come up with a defense or to have escaped, to have them have to come through a lock. But Jesus passes right through that locked door and is just standing in the midst of them. And he speaks peace to their fear. Over and over, Scripture tells us not to be afraid. He actually says it two times here in this very brief exchange. He also gives them the Holy Spirit by breathing on them. Um, now, this seems like a very odd thing to do, and there are some Christian evangelists and healers and um, who want to breathe on people and have it be the healing presence of God. Um, but I believe this is another reference of John back to creation and how This is a new creation, a new beginning. He began his gospel as a new creation by saying, in the beginning, just the way Genesis started. But it was the breath of God, the wind of the Holy Spirit, the nephesh, the ruach, um, that hovered over the chaos at creation. And it is the breath of God that indwells the first human being and they live they have life. Here now, the Holy Spirit comes upon them as breath, as wind of the Spirit, and makes them live. He authorizes them to forgive sins as He has been doing. Now, this doesn't mean that they have ultimate control over which sin is forgiven and which is not. What I believe it's telling us here is that they are going to be guided by the Spirit And they'll be able to accurately guide others how to live by the truths that Jesus has taught. Um, They will be able to speak for God as the prophets have, and they will be able to discern clearly and truly whether people have experienced repentance, whether people are on the right path. They will teach them how to be forgiven from their sins. The Greek here is aphemi. Um, to send away or permit, to release, to forgive. It's a passive present plural tense here, um, which means to let go, to give up um, as a debt, like not demanding a debt be paid. That's their ministry, is to go set people free from the debt of their sins by extending to them the forgiveness that comes to them through Jesus. The word retain here is the Greek verb kriteo, which means to place under one's grasp, to seize, to hold fast, or to prevail. 
Um, The disciples are also not going to have to be bound by the former rules. They're not under the law anymore. They can listen to the Holy Spirit and decide how they will live out these truths that Jesus has taught them. Um, They will be able to discern how you go forward and how you live from here on out. They don't have to be bound to all of the, the law in order to do so. Verses 24 through 29, we now see that Thomas has not been with the disciples earlier when Jesus has appeared to them. So he didn't see Jesus appear. And as they tell him about it, he says, well, I'm going to need to see that to believe it. He's not wrong. Dead people don't spontaneously come back to life. Resurrection is just not a common thing. Um, And he says, I'm going to need to see that to believe it. I think it is a real shame that he is forever defined by this moment here. He's known as Doubting Thomas. When I think he's being very reasonable, but Jesus now appears and appears to him and encourages Thomas to touch him, um, see for yourself. And then in verse 29, he refers to the fact that believers who come after are not going to get to see and touch his physical body. They're going to have to take a leap of faith and believe that Jesus lived and taught and died and was resurrected and now ever lives as our Savior. We're going to be asked to take a, a bigger leap of faith than Thomas has. Verses 30 through 31 Um, We see that John wants to be sure we understand that this is only a summary. It's only some of the things that Jesus did and taught. Um, His purpose is to engender faith, to inspire living in obedience with what Jesus said. He's never intended to make an exhaustive account of Jesus' life. He has shared what he has shared and put it together in the way he has as an argument um, for believing in Jesus Christ. In chapter 21, verses 1 through 14, we now have a living parable. Seven of the disciples are along the shore. They're back in Galilee along the Sea of Tiberias, which we also know is the Sea of Galilee or Lake Gennesaret there. Um, Some say that Peter, not believing in the resurrection, has gone back home. He's gone back to his fishing business. Um, But we see that he has seen the tomb. Um, He's now gone home. In another gospel, it says that Jesus says, tell my disciples to go back to Galilee. I'll I'll meet them like we had talked about in there. I think it's possible that Peter's just doing what he knows until he has something else to do, like he's not just going to sit idly by. So he's looking for something productive to do to fill the time. So he, he goes fishing. Simon Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, James, and John are five of the seven disciples. They're the ones named. James and John are the sons of Zebedee. And then there are two other disciples. More than likely, the two other unnamed disciples are Andrew and Philip. Um, Andrew is the brother of Simon Peter. Nathaniel is the brother of Philip. So it would make sense that their brothers are with them since their brothers brought them to Jesus in the first place. It tells us that they fish all night, which is the common way fishing was done, and they have no success. But Jesus shows up on the beach. They don't recognize him. Um, And even though he has appeared to them before in this gospel since the resurrection, um, but they're only going to be effective at fishing 
when they listen to Jesus and when they do what he's asked them to do or instructs them to do, the success is overwhelming. The catch is large. Um, John realizes that it's Jesus. And so um, Peter puts his cloak back on. It says, for he's naked. He was stripped down to his basic tunic that sat next to the skin. This would have been what you would have done when you were fishing or working hard. You would have taken off your outer garment in much the same way that nowadays men who are working might be working in an undershirt or um, they would have work clothes versus their good clothes. So Peter puts his cloak back on and he heads for Jesus, jumps out of the boat and goes on to shore. It's interesting to me that he was the, it says he went fishing, but now he just leaves the rest of them to, y'all Y'all finish this up. Y'all take care of this. I got to go. Um, in verses 9 through 14, Jesus fixes them breakfast. Um, it mentions that there's a charcoal fire. Earlier in this gospel, there was another charcoal fire on the night of Jesus' arrest, where John and Simon Peter are in the courtyard where Peter but denies Jesus. Now Jesus invites them to bring some of their catch, bring your resources, bring your effort, bring your resources, and Jesus will make them more, make them, there's more than enough here. Um, so we bring what we have to the ministry of Jesus and he multiplies it, he makes it effective, and there's more than enough for everybody. Now, it mentions that there are 153 fish in the net. There's been much speculation about what that number 153 means and why it is significant that that number was retained. The 4th century AD theologian Jerome theorized that it represents all the species of fish. So Jesus is the savior of the whole world. It represents universal. Because remember, Jesus has told them they're going to, I'll teach you to fish for people, to fish for men. Um, so this fishing, they catch all. So it is a universal mission of go out and bring all the world to me, kind of the way Matthew, the end of Matthew's gospel says, go and make disciples of all nations. The church father Augustine believed that it represented all the people, the universal mission of Jesus Christ. Another interesting but probably unlikely answer to this is why has to do with how many people Jesus has blessed. In the Gospel of Matthew, um, or in the Gospel of John, Jesus has pronounced three blessings on three people. In the Gospel of Matthew, he, there are 23 occasions where he blesses 47 people. In the Gospel of Luke, there are 14 occasions where he blesses a total of 94 people. And in the Gospel of John, or yes, in the Gospel of John, there are eight incidents and he blesses nine people. So in Mark, three people, Matthew, 47 people, Luke, 94 people, and John, nine people. If you add all of those up, what you get is 153. It, it's interesting, um, but it's unlikely to me that John would have had that in mind when he gives the number 153. Um, at the breakfast here that Jesus serves for them, there's enough and Jesus serves them. He distributes um, the breakfast here, and it's very reminiscent Verse 13 is of the feeding of the crowds, the feeding of the 4,000 and 5,000, where there's more than enough bread and fish for people. Jesus also now asked Peter three questions, and we get Peter's three responses. 
There are people who say that Peter denied Jesus three times, so now Jesus gives him three times to affirm his commitment, and that he's restoring Jesus, restoring Peter by asking him this three times to counteract each of the three denials. That's not really how forgiveness works. Um, When we ask forgiveness, we receive the forgiveness. We don't have to do it as many times as we sinned. We don't have to remember all of our little individual sins. Jesus is faithful to forgive us of our sins um, there. There's another something happening. I understand why people think that because there's a charcoal fire. There's a gathering with Jesus. There's three questions, three answers. Um, I get all that. I just don't think it's the most important thing happening. Because Jesus asked Peter three times, do you love me? Peter responds three times with, I do. And then Jesus gives him an instruction. I want to look at those in a little more depth. I hope this doesn't get confusing. In the first one, Jesus asked Peter, do you love me? And Jesus uses a form of the Greek verb agape, that unconditional love. Do you love me unconditionally and wholly? Um, And Jesus... Peter responds with, yes, you know I love you, but he uses the Greek verb for love, phileo, um, which is deep affection. That's the affection between friends. Phileo is, we get the Greek, the word Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It was a deep and abiding friendship that uh, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. Um, Yes, Jesus, you know I love you very much. And so Jesus says, then feed my lambs. And he uses um, a form of the word bosky um, here for feed and little lambs from um, Ocneon um, for little lambs, little ones. Then Jesus asks him again, Peter, do you love me? And he uses an agape. Do you agape me? And again, Peter responds with phileo. Yes, you know I have deep affection for you. And Jesus says, then tend my sheep or act as a shepherd for my sheep. Protect them, tend them, lead them, nurture them, be sure they are fed. Um, The tend here is from the poemani verb. Um, And then the word for sheep here is probata um, or my sheep. So a little older of sheep, not lambs, but older sheep. In the third time, Jesus now says, do you love me? And he uses a form of the the Greek word phileo. Do you have deep affection for me, Peter? And Peter responds with a, a form of the Greek verb phileo. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. So again, back to bosque, back to feed and probato, my sheep. Um, so here's what I think is happening. Jesus is saying, do you love me unconditionally? Are you 100% sold out and on board with me in the mission? Because you're fixing to be the leader of this thing that that I have started. And Peter keeps responding with, I have deep affection for you. The third time, it tells us that Peter is hurt. He's hurt that Jesus has asked him a third time. Something's different because Jesus changes the word and he's like, I believe you do have deep affection for me. Peter, you don't yet love me like I love you, but you're going to. And so he goes on to elaborate on that.
um, that Peter is going to come to love him unconditionally and be 100% sold out. That will come to its fruition on the day of Pentecost when he will step fully into this calling. He will learn to live into that calling, to be 100% sold out, bold, no more afraid, no more denying. Um, it's coming. And he even goes on to share with him that you're going to die a martyr's death. You'll be led to where you don't want to go. But he's also saying to Peter that his followers... They're, they're young and they're vulnerable. They're easily led astray like sheep. They tend to follow one another and follow a shepherd. They need to be in pasture. They need to be allowed to graze safely. They need to be fed on good nourishment. They need to be guided, led, and governed with love. And that's what I need you to do for me. In verses 20 through 23, um, Peter also asks about John. Okay, so if I'm going to be led where I don't want to go, and I mean, Peter seems to understand, I'm, I'm going to die for you. I, I get that. What about John? What, what's going to happen to him? And Jesus refuses to give him an answer. Um, speculation about why God uses or doesn't use another person, why another person seems to have an easier life, be more blessed, um, be promoted more, have a more successful ministry. None of that is for us to worry about. We need to be faithful to what God is calling us to do and let others worry about being faithful to what they are called to do. There is not a competition. There is not um, ambition and jealousy in the kingdom of God. There is faithfulness and obedience. There is servant leadership. And we humble ourselves and, and God exalts us in due time, puts us where we can be most effective and in the position where he most needs us. This statement, however, though, Lord Jesus says, what is it to you if, if he's still living when I come back? What if I let him live? That's nothing to you. Um, it started a rumor that says that John would not die, either that Jesus would come back in their lifetime and he would still be alive, or that he would never die like Enoch in Genesis or Moses or Elijah. They just were with God. God just takes them um, in there. That's not exactly what Jesus said. Jesus said, you don't worry about him. I'm not telling you anything about his life. That's none of your business. You mind your business and take care of your life. We have different fates and different roles in the body of Christ. We are to follow Jesus, be faithful, and don't worry about others. And then in the final two verses, verses 24 and 25, John affirms the authenticity Um of what this is, that he's recorded these things. It's kind of like um, that summary that he gave us back at the end of chapter 19, that this was never intended to be an exhaustive account. Um, those other stories are true. Don't reject the other gospels that are written, the things that are out there because of this. There's much to be told, and there are many ways to tell it. But I wrote this at the prompting of the Holy Spirit for the purpose of helping you believe. There is also the possibility that this story, the living parable of Jesus meeting them on the seashore, fixing them breakfast, that this actually was a story that should have appeared back before um, chapter 20, verse 19, when Jesus appears to the disciples, that John comes back later and adds this story, and like it should have been right there, but I'm tacking it on. At the end, it works fine. Um 
because it sounds like it might have belonged better there. We don't know for sure, um, but the story works out and, and works. We see the way that John has laid it all out. His gospel is meant to be a testimony to bring us to faith. He's organized it to show us the full scope of who Jesus was, who he did, both in his teachings and miracles, as well as with his life, death, and resurrection. And with that, the fourth gospel comes to a close.